1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the seats in front of you underneath that you can feel free to use. And if you don't have a Bible at all, one at home, feel free to take that Bible home and make it your own. Well, it is certainly a joy to worship with you this morning through song and hearing all the voices and the children's voices. Uh, This is a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful church. On Thursday evening here at Emmanuel, we had this, we had a beautiful Maundy Thursday service where we remembered Jesus' last supper with his disciples, the night where he washed their feet. He gave them the command to love one another as he has loved us. And Christ's love, I think, felt tangible in this room on Thursday evening. His great love and his great humility. And, and then I think that there was this incredible display of humility and love among the people who were here and it was moving and touching and an incredible demonstration of Christ in this church and it's enough to make this pastor proud I do I do love this church but even while these yeah wonderful even while these blessings abound and and more than the ones that I've just uh, spoken of there are sorrows Funerals this Easter, they bookend my Easter service, a funeral yesterday and one on Tuesday, and it's been about a month since we said goodbye to Ralph Arnold. And I know that there are many other things heavy on many hearts this morning. Loss is ever-present, and death visits every home at some point. But isn't this why Easter is the pinnacle of the church's celebration? The the pinnacle of our joy that on that Sunday some 2,000 years ago, the crucified Christ rose from the grave. And it wasn't he who was defeated. No, it was death that was defeated. He rose victorious over death. Hallelujah. This is why we celebrate Easter. And so we rejoice in our God who raises again his saints to life. And we rejoice that if you are in Christ, your life does not end with death. And we rejoice that though your soul may be heavy with sorrow, Christ's resurrection is an enduring proof of his unfathomable love for you. He is victorious and may his victory scatter the clouds of mourning that come heavy upon our hearts. So today, as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 28, I want you to see three things. One, what does Christ's resurrection mean for you? Second, when are we going to share in that resurrection? When's it happening? And then third, what is this resurrected life going to be like? And I assure you that today, we ascend together to the highest heights of glory. And I pray that it fills our hearts with joy, exceeding joy. Let's read this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. You can follow along with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as for a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in, all, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected, are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Father, God, give us eyes to see these wonders, absolute glories, bursting from the text today. Oh, I pray that if there are There are eyes in this room that have not yet been opened by the power of your Spirit. Father, open them. May they see Christ crucified, risen, and reigning, and worship. And may we all who have have been given that sight, may we likewise worship and rejoice. And may it spill out into every part of our life. May it spill out of our lives into this world. Oh, we pray it would be that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come, and that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. The passage begins with that rhetorical question. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's arguing that We do not end when our bodies die. There is more. There is life beyond death. There is a resurrection. And how do we know that the dead will rise? What is the proof? Christ rose from the grave. That is the proof. We jumped into verse 12 there without any context. We kind of landed in the middle of Paul's argument. In the verses immediately preceding verse 12... Paul's discussing the very many resurrections that there were, the very many witnesses that there were to the resurrection. He says that there are more than 500 people who have witnessed Christ's resurrected body. Now, Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians about 20 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, which means that any one of the readers of 1 Corinthians could have sought out these eyewitnesses and heard about the, heard their testimony about the risen Christ. You know, one doubt is or one witness is is unreliable, and you may doubt 
two witnesses. But 500? Any court that would not accept such profound corroboration would be utterly corrupt. Thus, Paul's word, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead by more than 500 people, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But then Paul does something that, that you would just never expect. He asks a question, what if? What if you're right? What if, what if he didn't raise from the grave? Which is what every atheist believes, that there is no life after death. And so Paul considers the terrifying thought that Christ truly did die that day on Golgotha, and that was it. Now, for clarity's sake, Paul isn't imagining a world here where God does exist, but where that God does not resurrect the dead. If that universe were true, then the following six things would also be true. One, you see in verse 14, his preaching and my preaching is in vain. All this talk of resurrection and all of its hopeful implications, it's utterly meaningless. We're just leading you on into fantasies and all I give you every Sunday is a bunch of hot air. This is just a bunch of hot air if Christ is not resurrected. Also in verse 14, Paul says that our faith would be in vain. Believing in eternal life is as valid as believing in the Easter bunny. Christ rested his entire ministry upon his resurrection. No resurrection, no Christianity. Your faith is in vain. Verse 15, if Christ is not resurrected, then that means we are misrepresenting God. Therefore, I and any who claim that there is a resurrection are false teachers and blasphemers and heretics. We are pathetic dealers of deception and you should flee from us. Verse 17, if there is no resurrection, and it means that you are still in your sins. There's no forgiveness. There's no removal of guilt. There is no redemption from your sin. All that you have, all that you have is condemnation. And verse 18, if there is no resurrection, then it means that those who have died have perished. Paul uses a Greek word here that can also be rendered, translated as destroyed. In other words, Paul is saying that without the resurrection, we're all damned. And so finally, verse 19, you see, of all people on earth, we Christians are the most to be pitied. It's pathetic. What we choose to spend our lives on, suffering for the sake of myths, Counting others as more significant than ourselves? No. If there is no resurrection, we should be squeezing every drop of pleasure and self-glory out of this life because it's all we have. If the dead are not raised, the desires of our heart and the hopes of our life are worthless and these pulls that we have towards everlasting life are just our fantasies. All we have is the, is the gospel of Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson that our molecular makeup will one day return to the stars from whence they came. From whence they came. But without a resurrection, who even cares?
But the light has shattered this darkness. And we need not despair, for Christ is risen. He is risen. And so what does this mean? We take all of these negative hypotheticals and we flip them into their true realities. Preaching of Christ crucified and resurrected is not in vain, but it is filled with glory. Filled with glory. So I give my life to preach Christ crucified and resurrected as a faithful ambassador of God. The deepest meanings of the universe are found in Christ, Christ's resurrection. And we are not misrepresenting God. Our God is a God of resurrection. And our Christ has risen. And if you believe, you also will rise. And people need to hear this resurrection proclaimed. They need to hear about the God who loves giving life to the dead. They need to hear, just as Jesus said in John chapter 5. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Hallelujah. If we have received Christ's words, then those words have been written upon our hearts. Now we must proclaim them, and it is not in vain. God is making all things new, and any who hear the words of Christ and believe will pass from death to life. For our faith is not in vain. No, Jesus rested his entire ministry upon the resurrection. And he did indeed rise. And so we know that with all that we are, we can trust him who has defeated death. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the promises of God. It assures us of his, him crucified and risen. And so since God promises to raise us, just as he raised Christ, then that means there is forgiveness. God cannot bring sinners into his holy presence without them immediately being annihilated. And so lest we perish, God must forgive our sins. And he does. If we are to forever live in his presence, it means that we are forgiven and Christ's blood was more than sufficient to cover, for your, to cover your sins and remove your wickedness. And he promises that he separates you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need not die in our sins. And if there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then that means that there is no punishment. There is no hell. There is no everlasting death. Before the face of God, we shall be utterly exposed, laid bare, completely naked, and be entirely unashamed. As God's unrestrained favor is lavished upon us for boundless ages, everlasting, unfading, immortality in the presence of Christ as he glories in us and we glory in him. Are we then to be pitied? Never. 
For we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And he has called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And every suffering and every self-sacrificial act, all of it is supremely worth it. Oh, indeed, we would count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yes, everything is lost compared to knowing him. If only the dying world could see God's offer of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, his resurrected son. Oh, we would not be pitied. We would be envied. A holy envy that draws the nations unto Christ. And indeed, it is Scripture's promise that the nations will be drawn to Christ by the resurrection power spilling forth from the tomb. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Christ has risen, and so shall the faithful of all the nations rise with him. But when? And that's the question that Paul begins to answer next. When does this happen? Good verses 20 through 22 here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I love how Paul says, those who have fallen asleep. He's not using language of death or perishing like he uses for those who die in their sins. He's using language of, of sleep. Like those who have died in Christ, they've just taken a brief rest, a moment of slumber. They've merely fallen asleep. And unlike the dead, the saints, they will be wakened. And Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning his resurrected life is the very first apple to ripen upon the tree. And when you see that first red apple, you know that all the other apples laden upon the branch will soon burst into their color. Again, Christ's resurrection is proof of ours, evidence that that our death will be defeated just as he has defeated death. We too will wake. And we will wake because Christ is recreating man. That's what Paul is arguing for. Christ is recreating man. Because before Christ, we were, we were all born with hearts bent towards sin and hands eager for wickedness. We were born into Adam's death. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. We are new creations in Christ. We are men and women remade into the image of Christ, born into a living hope. We were reborn to never die, but to eternally live. So shall it be. But for now, though our souls have been united to Christ, we remain clothed in Adam's body. Therefore, these bodies must die. 
But upon the resurrection, we will receive new bodies glorified in the unfiltered likeness of Jesus Christ. And we will be clothed in Christ entirely, completely glorified. At the close of history, when Christ returns, shall such resurrection glories break upon us. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I think in all of Scripture, Paul gives us the clearest description of how God is going to bring history to a close. The end begins with Christ's bodily return. Just as he ascended into the clouds, into heaven, he will descend from the clouds, from heaven, to this earth. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and will sound the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Christ will return, and then the dead will immediately rise, the resurrection of those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end, he says. And then verse 24, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepting, sorry, accepting who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are in subjection to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I know that's some confusing language there. But first comes Christ's return. And then without delay, the resurrection of the dead follows. And when the dead finally rise to life everlasting, then that means that death has forever been defeated. The initial blow came in that tomb when Christ rose, but death's final defeat is when the dead in Christ rise and death will be destroyed. Christ slays the greatest of humanity's foes and he throws death dead into its own grave. And death's final defeat The implication of this, what this means is that the kingdom of God has been consummated when death is finally defeated. For upon death's defeat, we read right here that Jesus hands the kingdom over to the Father. He gives the kingdom, completed and consummated and now glorified unto unto the Father. Like verse 25 says, it's a kingdom without enemies because every enemy has been defeated. So while the Son of God reigned from heaven, since he had not yet returned, while he reigned from heaven, he toppled every rule and every authority and every power that stood against God so that all things have been put into subjection to Christ, the King of all kings. And last of all, when Jesus gives up the kingdom, when he gives it to his Father, It will again be a demonstration of his great obedience and loyalty and love to his Father. 
And he will happily and joyfully and lovingly subject himself to his father. Oh, we think of subjection as this authoritarian, oppressive thing. Christ places himself in subjection to the Father, and it is the delight of his soul, the joy of his heart. And when he does this, when Christ does this, and all things have been placed in subjection to him, it means that everything in heaven and on earth will forever be ordered as they were meant to be. What a stunning Reality. And then we get these words. At the end of verse 28. That are too great for us. Wonders beyond our mind. And yet they electrify every nerve of hope that we have. If you ever thought that eternal life sounds dull, like what are you going to do for a thousand years and a thousand thousand years and a million years and a billion years? Am I not going to get bored of this? This little phrase should cast away every one of those thoughts that God will be all in all. God will be all in all. This is no animistic claim. This means that every living being will be filled with the Spirit of God so that the knowledge of God erupts from every heart and every thought will be birthed in worship and praise will pour forth from every mouth and every hand will be given in humble service to one another. And God will be all in all. Where every place that we look, we will marvel at the works of God in the forests and the stars and the animals and the oceans, the abundance and beauty wrought by the Creator in the new heavens and the new earth will fill us with worship, body and soul. And there will not be one moment where you are not flooded with the thought, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God will be all in all. And we will marvel at the works of God wrought in the faces of sinners, redeemed, now glorified. Some we loved, some had departed before us. Most we will rejoice upon meeting, all we will love, and all will love us. Chapters of friendship will never close. Precious moments of fleeting fellowship that we know now and they last just for a moment, will last millennia then, if we so choose. And we will be in awe of the amazing grace that lifted the despised and the broken and the rebellious and and bought them to become treasured sons and daughters, brought them into resurrection glory. And God will be all in all satisfied by the unfettered love of Father, Son, and Spirit. This, this is our resurrection hope and our eternal glory in Christ. So incredible is the magnitude of these things. So beyond us that it forces Paul to his knees 
and he prays. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What wonder! And what despair we would know if Christ had not been raised from the dead. But he has. He has been raised from the dead. Christ has risen. Our bodies will die. But when Christ appears, so shall we appear like him, glorified, and we will rejoice forever in the presence of Christ, united to Christ in the presence of our Father. And there is no hope and there is no love that is greater than this. May we indeed have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height, the length, the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And may we today, even today, be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what Christ, or that's what Paul is praying, that today you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You need not wait for a thousand years from now. Today. And that glory is streaming out of an empty tomb into your heart today. This morning I want to leave you with a poem by Mary Lowe Dickinson called Thine Easter Day. It's part of the poem. If broken down our stony gates of pride, if shrouding bands of earth are torn away, if sin and wrath and scorn in thee have died, mourn not the past, the folded shroud beside. Angels will watch. It is thine Easter day. Rise now, newborn soul, and put thine armor on. Clasp round thy breast the garment of light. Gird up thy loins for the battle in the fight. He who leads upward from our sight has gone. It is his day. There's no more death nor night. No dark, no hurt, no more sharp shame nor loss. All buried, hidden neath the grave's dark sod. Always forgotten, save the road he trod. All burdens not, not in sight of his, the cross. All joy, alive and safe with Christ in God. Oh, Father God, we praise you, worship you for the incredible glories you have, wa- you have wrought in Christ, crucified and risen, and now reigning as the king of all kings. Help us to know this, to understand this, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, how deep and high and wide And great it is that we would be filled with all of your fullness. I don't even know what that really means. I just know I want it. May we glorify you in all that we are and all that we do. And I pray if there are 
hearts here that have yet to experience even a measure of these glories, burst upon them. Burst upon them, Father. Bring them out of their tombs. We long for the day when we will see your face and we will rise and we will be transformed into the image of your Son perfectly, completely, and death flies away and sin is no more. Hallelujah. The day comes. It is coming. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.